0: or prevent any disease. Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Hello and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. I'm also a coach, author, and healer. And, you know, one of my favorite things about Real Men Feel is the eclectic subject matter and the wide variety of guests I get to talk to. And this is despite having numerous media professionals tell me I should focus on just one aspect of men and build a large audience by focusing on just this one thing. And if I did that, I would be bored to death. I, I think I would just hate that. And a show like today wouldn't happen. You know, in the past, we've done shows about the connection between men and their dogs but we've never expanded into the greater animal kingdom. So I'm really excited today. My guest is scientist, author, and storyteller, Dr. Caitlin O'Connell, who joins us to discuss male elephant society and what humans can learn about rituals from animals. So welcome to Real Men Feel, Caitlin.
1: Thanks, Andy. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, I was really looking forward to this. Uh, a mutual friend put us into contact, and uh, she heard of, of your research with elephants and everything you learned about male elephants and society and just thought it would fit with me and And it did
1: (laughs) yeah i'm excited to to talk to you and your audience about this because there there are so many amazing parallels between male elephant society and male humans
0: cool what first got you interested in in elephants has it been since you were a little girl or
1: i've always been interested in animals and animal communication um and uh, my first love was frogs and then it went to insects But um, really, the opportunity to study elephants came when I uh, was um, volunteering in different game parks in Africa. My boyfriend at the time, now husband, and I took a year off between graduate degrees, and uh, we were volunteering in a game park, and they asked us if we wanted to do this elephant study. And we're like, what? (laughs) Um, Absolutely, yes. and, and the, there are many reasons why elephants appeal to me because they communicate long distances and I always loved animal communication uh, and it just one thing led to another and it fast quickly became my life's work and uh, you know once you study elephants you can't really go back <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right so t- so tell me about elephant communication I, I didn't I don't understand them. what how do they communicate long distances
1: well um that has been a subject of, of my research for a long time. Uh, elephants have this low frequency rumble that propagates through the ground, through the air, uh, very long distances and elephants, um, they have big ears for a reason, not just to cool themselves, but also to, you know, use them as a parabola, uh, to pick up these low frequency sounds and their middle ears, their cochlea are set up designed to detect low frequency sound at the threshold and below threshold of our hearing so at 20 hertz and males actually produce rumbles at 10 hertz and that uh, low frequency signal then propagates long distances and so I my first work on elephants was really looking at um, how their vocalizations are made and propagated and um, the you know the physical structure of them but at the same time, I was also helping people keep elephants out of their crops. <laughs> so there were many different aspects of elephants that I i, I was actually contracted to the Namibian government to um, do a study on the how elephants use their environment and how to take that knowledge and help farmers deter them from coming into the cornfields and eating all their food.
0: <laughs> so... Is there is there really a language
1: behind the vibrations? Yes, um, the vibrations that are made as the elephant vocalizes is essentially the same signal as what gets propagated in the air, but it just gets also propagated in the ground because elephants are so heavy and the, the, el- the vocalization is so low frequency and created at such a high sound pressure level it's like a mini explosion at 120 decibels. This sets a, off a ripple across the surface of the Earth, and elef- other elephants can detect that signal uh, as a vocalization.
0: And what's unique about elephant society that that got you excited?
1: Oh my gosh, elephants are so much like us that I, 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 I would it's just like looking in the mirror. It's so unbelievable. I mean, you think, okay, a great ape looks similar to us. So you could kind of expect that, that they would have family structure and similar politics. But elephants with this crazy, crazy long nose and long teeth as tusks and giant ears, they also have very similar family structures and family politics. And male-male bonding and, and male politics. <laughs> the same, you know, back-slapping in the bar and, um, you know, kissing the ring of the dawn and having muscle do all of your dirty work for you. <laughs> it's just like being an anthropologist and kind of having a secret window into this other society that happens to be elephants.
0: That's fascinating. So is there, is there anything that that male humans... Can, can learn as, as a good example from male elephants?
1: There are many things. Um, you know, one of the most striking, and I think this is how we got connected originally, was that, uh, that young males, young male elephants, just as young male humans, really need mentors. And to see that out in the wild, to see the importance of mentorship, is a double reminder of how it's important to us and how we need to pay attention to that and and really help young males and females, but in this male society, help young males um, have role models and, and actual physical mentors. So what happens out in the wild with elephants is that there's a lot of hormonal influence of an older bull on a younger bull. A younger bull, if he was not in proximity of an older bull, he would go into the hormonal state of must much sooner than he would otherwise. And must is like rut in antelope, where in antelope, all males go into the state at the same time. It's the mating season, and they all fight each other for access to mates and whether they bellow and roar as well. Um, but in elephants, it's more of a gentlemanly turn-taking, that one male goes into must and the others do not. Or he goes away from his group and seeks out females and then comes back months later when he's not in must anymore. So what happens with these young bulls, if there's no older male in proximity, they go into must much earlier than they should. And this has been shown in two parks in South Africa where um, many different animals were reintroduced to an environment, including young male elephants and rhinos. And there's always a contention between elephants and rhino to begin with but these young males without the oversight uh, hormonal oversight of older bulls kind of went berserk they went they were really really aggressive went into uh, had high testosterone spikes which is the signature of of must and killed rhinos a number of them and in both situations the park managers realized oh okay let's bring in older bulls and see if that will sort this out And even just the mere presence, they didn't know these older bulls, but the mere presence of this older bull caused them to go out of must and stop behaving so erratically. And um, it's a fascinating demonstration of how mentorship and even physical proximity uh, is important, whether you're watching the behaviors of that mentor or... um, having that mentor teach you certain things. And in elephants, that's really important. Um, Cultural knowledge being passed on to the next generation is really important. And so in many ways, um, male elephants really learn from and look up to these elders because they grow up in families just like we do. And at that coming of age time when they're 12 to 15, they leave their families. And they're so social, they just came out of a very social situation. They don't want to be alone. So they look for older males to take them in, and they really do literally take them under their wing. (laughs)
0: That's fascinating. Does this happen in in other species at all, or is this really elephant-specific?
1: Well, elephants are unique in terms of how male-driven their male societies are, or how male-centric, I should say, where, you know, in chimps, there'll be male-male coalitions, um, but even their dominance decisions and and how they behave towards each other is still influenced by females because females are still there. They're still living in a uh, mixed-sex situation, whereas male elephants are not. They live in these male, all-male societies and all-male bonded groups within that social network. And so decisions are made based on purely out of dominance not out of reproductive or competition over a female that might be present like oh i'm going to do this and you know impress this female that's not how their society works so it's an interesting model for um, many human all-male societies and kind of ritual behaviors within these societies that that elephants have this all-male groups and uh, sperm whales are similar they have these all-male bachelor groups that don't interact with the females Uh, so there there are are a few examples but not as many as you might think
0: so it's the, the males kind of have their own society and until they create a family and then they stay with the family or does the males kind of not stick with the family
1: no they don't they they'll go into this hormonal state of must They'll look for females that are an estrus, which is like a dog in heat, so she's cycling the male will mate guard her for several days while she's cycling the the must male, and then they reproduce and then he goes back to his male society, so he does not he's not involved at all in the rearing of the next generation uh The only time he then interacts with family is if they overlap at a waterhole and young bulls might come and get curious about the older bulls and come and investigate them, and the, many older bulls will let them, some will not, because there's all different adult male characters. There's the bullies, there's the diplomats, uh, there's the politicians, <laughs> there's the punching bag. <laughs> there's all these different characters, and they really do have... Uh, uh, permanence to that character. We're we're looking at a data set right now over five years and showing how really the the diplomat always stays the diplomat and makes decisions to either reject a bully when he sees a bully coming in. He'll try and keep him away from the group, uh, and when he sees one being aggressive to another, he will go out and try and stop the uh, the fight. <laughs> And so it's it's really fascinating to see this uh, parallel universe between elephant males and human males. You know, again in the bar that kind of back slapping. They love tactile interaction. These males they they love touching, and um, you know trunk over the head or touching their ear to the body of another. They're always in tactile uh, contact with within their bonded groups. And these bonded groups have a leader, and leadership is is not a word that one should take lightly, because leadership implies that you are trying to um, influence the group to help the group, not not just being on the top of the of the totem pole, let's say. So dominance and dominance hierarchies, that dominant individual is. Uh, the highest ranking individual. But when you say, uh, like, like in baboons, let's say the yellow baboon, um, being on top of the dominance hierarchy does not necessarily mean you're a leader, because the females in the group lead. The, the male's just trying to make sure he stays dominant but he doesn't care so much about the outcome of of the group or whether they get enough food to eat. (laughs) Um, But in elephants, it appears that that dominant bull is making decisions not only for the safety of himself, but for his group, because there's this realization that being in a group has benefits. You can coordinate, you can form coalitions, and protect your territory. Now, they don't have territories, but they have these home ranges and water sources within the home ranges that um, that they form these intimidation, you know, intimidating situations to force others to stay away. And it's very, it's very blatant. They'll stand, you know, it's like taking all your guys at the muscle and standing up with their muscle shirts in a line. These guys will take their ears, hold them straight out, hold their shoulders up, and then take their eyes and look down at this individual male as he's walking past to intimidate him. And it works. These bulls do not want to walk past that wall of shame. <laughs> They're really t- spend a lot of, energy on uh, nonverbal cues to intimidate others away. And, and you can only do that, you can only coalesce these uh, coalitions by being in a bonded group and communicating with each other. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting to see how male elephants do that, even to the point of um, the lead bull will say, okay, let's, let's go, it's time to leave the waterhole and we all leave together. So he rumbles and the rest of them respond just like a family group does. Um, but in, in male elephants, this shows that they didn't just randomly show up at this water hole and randomly happen to choose to leave in the same direction. The dominant bull is actually coordinating them all and saying, okay, let's go. He makes a decision about what direction to leave in. He spends a lot of time doing that. And then everyone follows him out in a line. So these bonded male groups are um it's a little bit surprising because people think that male elephants just kind of wander around in the bush and don't have friends they bump into somebody um but they really have these um very bonded uh groups that they um that they have deep relationships with each other within these groups and it's just fascinating to see. I mean, male elephants wear their heart on their sleeve. They really spend a lot of time, you know, just kind of tussling with each other. And it's very different than the females. Females are business only. They go into the water hole. they got to protect all the little ones and make sure that some other family aggressive matriarch from another family doesn't push them out. So they're always, they, they don't really relax as much as the males do. And they don't spend as much time with tactile interaction so um, these, these male elephants are just a fascinating way for us to learn more about what's important within these bonded groups and you know what we should pay attention to um, h- how do we get closer to each other and and you know tactile interactions are a really important part of that which is also why you know, makes the pandemic even harder to deal with because we can't shake hands, we can't slap each other on the back, hug, um, you know, all these things that elephants love to do and and male humans love to do. We can't do them right now. And it just highlights the importance of these these behavioral interactions.
0: Is there anything that you see um, watching male elephants in society and their interactions, is there anything that you see that you wish? Well, oh, I wish I wish male humans did that more, or this would be a great thing for them to carry on or, or teach us.
1: Um, I, I do. I you know I see these gentle old bulls and how they deal with these rambunctious youngsters. So being dominant, there's all these different ways in which an older bull knows that he can't let a youngster get away with something. It's just like humans, you know dad, dad, can I have the keys to the car? You know, always pushing, 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 and trying to get what you can get and what angle you can get it at. You know, older male elephants see the younger males doing this. And the nicer, smarter older ones don't just like tusk them aside or, you know, give them a trunk slap. They actually just gently nudge them away. So. An example would be a younger bull is trying to access the best water, which is a dominance position, and he knows it. He's trying to get at this older bull, and the older bull sees him trying to stick his trunk into the best water, because elephants love fresh water, so the dominant individuals always get to stand at the uh, source of the spring, because that's where the freshest water is. So these youngsters will try and slip their trunk in there to get the best water, and a bully would just shove him away, but an older gentle bull just leans up against that young bull like, no, 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 and kind of pushes him aside. If he comes back, which they normally do, go, oh, no, 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 come on, come on, I really want to get in there, then he'll just use him as a, a scratching post, he'll distract him. And I think that's a really important message for us is don't just use physical force, but you know, distract them away t- to some other thought and, and get them, you know, because when you want something, you're so fixated on it and you just keep trying, trying. And the, this, these older male elephants help the young males just break that and distract them away from what they're trying to do. And I see that in so many different ways in male elephant society.
0: The, the old myth of elephants never forget does that kind of is that coming from this ancestral passing on of knowledge? This this mentorship idea is is that connected at all, or where does that come from?
1: Well, as I said earlier, elephants um, they do pass on knowledge to the next generation, and so to have a repository of this knowledge and to be able to pass it on is really important. So having long term memory of what you learned from your grandmother or one of the elder bulls, um, allows you then to pass that knowledge on to the next generation. And for elephants, you know, they're migratory animals and they have to remember these long distances that they travel and where those paths go and say when the fruit trees are ripening along a certain corridor at a specific time of year, that that long-term memory facilitates Um, their survival for that purpose, but also for uh, cultural transmission of this um, very important knowledge. You know, elephants need to learn what is safe to eat, and this ritualized greeting behavior of placing the trunk in the mouth, which is a very trusting thing because someone could bite it, um, that behavior evolved from the the desire to figure out what that other elephant is eating and so youngsters do that, and then this behavior got ritualized into purely just a greeting behavior. But youngsters still need to learn from others what's safe to eat. And so that knowledge uh, gets passed down to them from the older generations. But then when things uh, in the environment change, when it dries up, the, actually the older, wiser individuals in the group help that group succeed more than uh, younger uh, families that don't have that repository of knowledge within their, um, within their family. They don't do as well because they don't know as many options for how to deal with uh, stressful situations. Um, so having that long-term memory uh, is beneficial on many levels.
0: Is there always just one diplomat and one bully or is each one different? And you could have, you know, multiple variations of these different personality types.
1: Well, you know, it's that's a good question, because within families, you do see the matriarch, the kind of general, the diplomat and then uh, a kind of secretary of state sort of you know there's 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 leadership that's uh, spread amongst the older females and and within these specific um, genres and for males it's the same you there might be several diplomats but usually one that really makes a statement about bullies and and bullies evolve out of being a bully if there's an opportunity to uh, be more of a dominant individual. They, What I've seen, um, and, and I write a lot about this in my book, Elephant Don, uh, about this amazing um, dominant bull and his posse that's about 15 other elephants. One year, he disappeared from the population the year that we decide to film him, of course. Like, that's the most constant thing in the environment. Greg is going to be there, and he's not. So what do we do? How do we solve this? Is to look at what happens when the kingpin is removed from the society. What what happens? Our two biggest bullies were uh, Luke and Prince Charles. <laughs> Our two bullies were... Uh, they immediately started be more diplomatic with the younger ones and tried to build posses of their own and, and were much less aggressive and, and so to see how a bull will react to their social environment you know their, their, their characters are somewhat dependent on the habitat environment but also social environment but yet over time when we look over a five year period of both wet and dry years you still have this core um, personality trait that you're either really outgoing and affiliative, uh, more likely to reconcile, whereas you can also have bulls that are much more likely to charge first, ask questions later. <laughs> and uh, and where then you have Greg, who's the most dominant individual, and he's somewhere in between. He's got the carrot and the stick. And it it more individuals move in that direction when they're climbing up the Uh, the dominance hierarchy, that they know that we can see that the other individuals don't like to hang out with bullies. And bullies don't necessarily want to be around others, but when they do, they're too aggressive. And then they've got to temper um, their behavior accordingly. And it's really fascinating to see over the years to watch these different characters evolve based on um, what their interests are in that group. So there are many not many let's say two or three individuals that were as close as possible to the don position but were not politically motivated at all so when the don disappeared they did not become the next don they just were very well liked but they never took on that role and so it's very just as we all have our own personalities they all have their own characters that are influenced by the, the others that are around them and by the environment. So that, that's just another way to highlight how similar they are to us. And, and what being able to watch um, their male society over the years has really helped me see that even more, how similar we are to elephants in so many ways and how much we are a social animal confined by all of the same things that other social animals are. And that, that's actually why I got inspired to write um, Wild Rituals, my latest book, is because I wanted to show how similar we were to these other animals and how ritual is so important to bring us together and to keep the peace. And it, it's—it there's so many fascinating parallels that I was excited to put those on the page so that people could really experience them for themselves.
0: Ooh, so... For animals and humans, why are rituals important to begin with?
1: Well, it's interesting. Um, you know, you wonder why are there dawn choruses? Uh, you know, why does the lion roar at dusk and dawn? Why do they do that? Um, well, if you, you can look at it as, as keeping the peace. They're defining a boundary, and this is their area. And then the other pride over at that other waterhole roars at dawn and dusk to define their territory. And this is a important ritual for them to keep the peace. Now greeting also is a ritual to keep the peace. You know, the handshake originally, it's thought that it evolved um, to show that you were not carrying a weapon. And for the elephant uh, or the wolf, it's very disarming to place yourself in a very vulnerable position, put your trunk in the other's mouth or to uh, for a wolf to lick the mouth of a dominant individual that could bite you. Um, it's, a, it's a demonstration of trust and that you don't mean any harm. So it's very disarming and brings peace. Now, hormonally, it also um, stimulates hormones like oxytocin. Uh, when we, we gaze at each other, when we smile at each other, it's called the bonding hormone. And it even works between yourself and your, your pet, your dog, um, dogs also, when they gaze at you and you gaze at them, it's just like the mother-child bond or parent-child bond where um, you both get this release of oxytocin which makes you feel good, warm and fuzzy. Uh, so there are many reasons uh, and and as far as, you know, I talk about 10 different rituals but let's use another example of group rituals. Group rituals, um, anthropologists thought evolved in humans to help us to facilitate hunting. So, you know, in the early days, and when we were hunter gatherers, we had to take down giant sloths or, or mammoths, We well, you can't do that by yourself. You need a whole group and you need to trust that group and you need to work as a, as a unit. And so group rituals were uh, thought to evolve, to facilitate um, bonding within that group and building trust. And, and so, Lions do the same thing when they're hunting. You know, they they have all of these different rituals to to stay bonded to each other, and they have different positions that they take. Uh, so there are so many rituals in nature that are uh, enacted for a very specific purpose. And for us in our daily lives, um, you know, I, I have a little ritual right before I sit down to do my writing uh, in the morning, and you know, I meditate and I. I have a few little talismans of you know at my desk that I uh, hold in my hand, and it's kind of rituals help comfort you. They help you really know what to do. I mean, rituals in, in throughout human society have really helped us feel more comfortable and more bonded to each other. You know it's easy to think about how that might play out. Uh, in a religious group or if you're a synchronized swimmer or in a marching band, all of the physical repetition that goes into a ritual actually forces your brain to focus and to be more concentrated. Um, so there's, there's lots of ways that rituals make us stronger uh, and help us think better.
0: Uh, are there any wild rituals that you, uh, that you, you you witness and you think, why wow, I wish I wish more people would do this?
1: Well, just even a simple greeting. I mean, elephants do not overlook the greeting ritual. Uh, Dogs will never not greet you when you come home. You know, that's just not on the table. Um, But we often will take that for granted. You know, even during the pandemic, if you're you know, wake up and go downstairs or wherever your coffee machine is, you know, get me coffee. Uh, You might not look at your partner or your loved ones, um, but simply looking each other in the eye, saying hello, or saying I love you, or kiss your loved ones. These things are really important. And sometimes we neglect them. And, you know, I started writing this book before the pandemic, but During the pandemic, I had to address these issues even more so. I think we are now much more aware of what we are losing by not being able to touch each other, to be in physical proximity with each other, to see each other smile uh, when we're all having to wear masks to keep each other safe. All of these very simple things. Um, in, In the animal kingdom, they, in my experience, elephants... Uh, even zebras, they, they don't overlook uh, greeting. And, and, and it's partly a survival tactic. You have to disarm the other stallion to make sure that you all both see eye to eye and that you trust each other. And in humans, we could learn a lot from that that you know, even in a, in a business situation or even with strangers, just smiling with your eyes and your mouth, if they can see you, <laughs> is disarming, and it makes everyone feel good. Smiling is contagious. Uh, so it's, um, there are many very simple things that we can learn from nature to remind us of how important these rituals are in our daily lives.
0: How long do you study or observe a group of elephants before the personalities become apparent to you, before you're naming them and, and knowing them as individuals?
1: Um, sometimes it's very obvious right from the beginning, know, a very overtly aggressive bull um, or a, a matriarch who... she'll just barrel into the waterhole and chase everyone else away. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's very overt, but for others it's much more subtle. You know, Willie Nelson's one of our diplomatic characters. He's very subtle and he... Well, subtle until he really needs to put his foot down. Um, he and Prince Charles have a tiff, and every time Prince Charles comes around, he tries to say, "Hey, we don't want bullies around here. We don't want you." And um, and and Prince Charles has had to adapt his behavior accordingly. I don't know what the real Prince Charles would think of all this, but he he got named because he has a C cut out in his ear, and one of my students picked that name. <laughs> And um, so, yeah, we have names for N numbers, ID numbers, and over 200 bulls uh, cataloged and um, 15 family groups. And they all have their numbers, but it makes it a lot easier to to really watch their behavior and, and know them by giving them a name.
0: I want to clarify, this is all in Namibia. You're not studying elephants in a zoo or anything like that. This is in the wild. No, this
1: is uh, in the wild. So I've had this um, field site for the last 30 years, and I um, started out working for the Namibian government, both in Natasha National Park and the Zambezi region. And ever since, um, you know, when I got my PhD, started at a nonprofit, Utopia Scientific, and started having regular field seasons in Namibia uh, within Atasha National Park in an area that's closed to the public. So when we go back to the site, we get to see the same cast of characters every year and how things develop, you know, new babies, um, you know, better relations between these two families and worse relations between these two and um, all of the different bull soap operas that are ongoing and riveting.
0: (laughs) So I I've had the pleasure um and privilege and honor of visiting Africa twice. And the the first place I, I visited was the Daphne Sheldrick Animal Orphanage in Kenya. Oh god. I, I remember seeing just the baby elephants that couldn't control their trunks and I had no idea and were, their trunk just spazzing all over the place and they were just muscular and they didn't control them and they were I was getting slapped by trunks and you know <laughs> are are you uh, watching from afar, are you? Are they really used to humans? Can you walk among your elephants, or how how does that work? No,
1: um, no. This is a wild place, you know. Daphne Sheldrick's orphanage is. Um, it has to be hands on, and these poor little calves have lost their families, and they really bond with their keepers, and they really need that interaction. Um, and so it's wonderful to get to experience that. Um, but for us, we are visitors, scientists that are observing them in their natural habitat and their natural society. And so we don't intervene. Unfortunately, I would love to hang out with Willie Nelson and share a orange together. (laughs) But no, we don't do that. We don't feed the wildlife. We don't interact with them. Um, We have a tower, an observation tower that's 80 meters from the water hole. And we have a bunker that's 20 meters from the water hole that allows us to get better ID shots um you know it's all about the wear and tear of the edges of their ears uh and the the tail hair patterns on their tails that those are the main things that we use to catalog uh and identify the the different elephants
0: what's the typical lifespan for an elephant in the wild
1: uh elephants are very similar to humans um you know anywhere from 60 to 90 i mean 90 is more in captivity although there's been some studies to show that they actually don't live as long in captivity because of unhealthy conditions and not being able to uh usually foot problems from not being able to uh walk long distances and and you know have cement and you know not good conditions for them but um on average around 60 um maybe a little bit more maybe a little bit less and and sometimes in natasha we see elephants that we think uh, when they die naturally and you get to see the jaw because you can age them based on the uh how many teeth are left in the jaw so that the um elephants have six sets of teeth and when the first one if they move forward the first one drops out and the second one erupts and moves forward and actually another just stunning thing uh is that young bulls when older bull his last set of teeth fall out that is a natural way for an elephant to pass because they can't chew their food anymore but a young bonded bull will come and chew the food for the elder and 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 give it to him oh that's just incredible
0: (laughs) yeah Um, i mean it 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 sounds like male elephants are much more evolved than many human males (laughs) as mentors passing it down and as, as, as taking care of elders um, in terms of comfortable with touch and emotions on their sleeve. You had mentioned earlier, um, and, and, and being the dominating bull, but without only dominating, they seem to have a sense of of balance and
1: they definitely have a sense of balance. Yes. It's not all about pushing each other around, that dominant bull knows that he has to reward and treat the younger bulls well. And he, he he seems to also have a sense that these young bulls, when they come out of the family, they're so lacking in that social interaction. They're, they're so needy socially, and they really want to pour on all their love onto the elder bulls, and some of them don't want that. Just like, get away, it's too much. But the dominant bull will take them in. He'll even, like, take his... his um, ear and put it over the head like he's hugging the uh the youngster with his ear or or he, he might do it with his trunk as well but he really will take them in and it's you know not all bulls will do that very special bulls will will recognize that these youngsters need a social outlet and they're just always touchy touchy and some of the older bulls are like ah go away, <laughs> but some were like, no, 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 come on, I know you need that, oh, you want to suck on my trunk, I'm uh, on my tusk, they'll even let the younger bulls just come up and put their mouth on their tusk and, and suck on it, and it's like, <laughs> you just wouldn't expect a big, brutish, older bull to allow that to happen, and they're just like, oh, no, come on, <laughs> come play with me. I know you want to climb all over me. <laughs>
0: all right, love the elephants defy expectations. That, that's uh, that's, that's yeah. so cool. Awesome. Tell me a little bit more about Utopia Scientific. I, I know at least pre-pandemic, you pe- people could actually go with you on a trip.
1: Yes, yes. We do have a donor volunteer program and a student program where uh, people get to participate. It's, a little, it's similar to um, Earthwatch in a way. Um, where people get to participate in the science and they become one of the people, whether they're managing the video recordings or um, mapping where each elephant defecates out there on the field because we we learn a lot from their poo uh, hormonally, genetically, um, and what they're eating. Um, so our nonprofit, we uh, my husband and I started it as a way of doing more uh research on elephants that can be turned into conservation management um, and uh, more science awareness about elephants and the importance of of keeping elephants on this earth uh, and also other kinds of science and public health messaging um so www.utopiascientific.com com is our is our non-profit dot um, org dot org sorry thank you dot <laughs> <laughs> org yes we are a nonprofit, yes.
0: Awesome.
1: And uh, also, you know, depend on people's donations and to help this ongoing science.
0: You, you mentioned it. So why is it important that elephants don't only exist in zoos and circuses?
1: Well, elephants should only exist in their natural habitat, if at all possible. Uh, we, um, and we try and show what we can learn from, well, the importance of their society in their intact uh, state and um, you know, also trying to keep their migratory routes intact and really letting them live like they should be able to. Uh, being in captivity has many downsides and uh, we're trying to just build awareness to how beautiful life could be for an elephant if they had enough space uh, to live as, as they would. Naturally,
0: uh, everything you're you're finding and sharing, I find fascinating. And and you, we're talking about the not t- not typical elephants out there, and you're not the typical scientist because you you've got nonfiction books, you have fi- fiction books, you have graphic novels. You're you're really uh, bringing the world of of animal research and elephants into and just out out into the world in so many different ways. I find that fascinating.
1: Well, I do really enjoy trying to translate science. Um, for the general public. And it kind of started as a specific challenge to see if I could do that um, and then really enjoyed the storytelling that came from it. And And I learn a lot more about the elephants by having to describe what I'm seeing to others. And that's been a, a surprising, surprisingly fulfilling component of it. Um, but also, you know, wanting people to understand... You, When you write nonfiction, you are speaking to a certain group of people or science memoirs, but by writing a lot of the things that I've learned as fiction in my uh, thriller the, um, called Ivory Ghosts, it's about the ivory trade, and it's based on a town doctor that was smuggling ivory, and our boss was chasing him in a cat-and-mouse kind of situation, and uh, I turned this... Um, this story into a thriller, and then um, have a comic series as well that matches that thriller.
0: So, what's the best way for people to learn more about you and all that you're up to?
1: Um, well, my author site, uh, Caitlin O'Connell dot is uh, where all of my books and the description of books, and then our nonprofit, UtopiaScientific.org. dot um, org. My social media handles are Elephant Skinny for. Twitter and then elephant underscore skinny for, uh, for Instagram.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I really, uh, appreciate your, your time. Um, all not having your research, just be dry research. I, I really enjoy the storytelling, the entertainment factor that you, you bring to all that you're doing and to, to spread the good word of elephants and all the other wild animals that you have come across and the importance of rituals as well visit realmenfield.org and we'll have all the links to all the various books and projects and websites that you're up to uh encourage people to to sponsor an elephant to, to start planning ahead for a, a return to Namibia. To hopefully yeah, yeah. you know not not years away months away i don't, I don't know how that's all going to play out but uh that would be great
1: 2022 i don't know if this season's not looking good. <laughs> who knows what's what happening with the vaccine but um yeah last year was the first in 20 that we were not uh, first year consecutive year that we couldn't be in the field so hopefully it won't be too long but yeah Ooh. but uh, it's great yeah great talking to you and great talking about these parallels between human male society and elephants and i think the more we can think about those parallels the, the better off we'll be
0: yeah yeah and i i invite uh, more men to to look up to the elephants And find ways that they could be a mentor or, you know, care for the elderly people in their community. Um, And and just realize that just like elephants, men need connection, need community. And we're all get we're all better off as partners than in competition. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cool. So wherever you're listening to Real Men Feel, please give a share, a like. Let someone else know about the importance of elephants, the importance of men, whatever, whatever strikes the chord with you most. And until next time, be good to yourself. Thank you for listening to Real Men Feel. Contact us at realmenfeel at gmail.com. Learn more about author, coach, and healer Andy Grant at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now.